This is Lisa Miller and Associates, Florida Insurance Roundup, your podcast on the people, issues, and regulations shaping Florida's insurance market. Now, here's Lisa Miller. Welcome, friends. Today, five months after Hurricane Ian struck Florida's southwest coast, there's some interesting data that we've been studying and emerging on the deadly effects of its wind, rain, and its storm surge. Within the data are potential lessons for our state building code officials and all of us going forward. Ian's high-end Category 4 hurricane winds brought maximum gust of up to 155 miles per hour. Rainfall upwards of 20 inches and even more critically that dreaded storm surge, which was up to 13 feet in some areas. 20,000 homes were severely damaged or destroyed and many thousands of others were damaged You know, this flooding was what everyone talked about rather than the wind. We all read about it in the news, and they said that the flooding was like none had ever seen. Worse, Ian left a death toll that now stands at almost 150 people, with the discovery last month of two previously missing Lee County residents found drowned. That's the highest number of deaths in a Florida hurricane since the 1926 disaster nearly a century ago. The State Senate Select Committee on Resiliency recently heard testimony from Charlotte County that in their county alone, 322 homes were destroyed, and in Collier County, their lead official gave a similar statistic of 144 displaced homeowners. I was in those committee meetings and chatted with the other county representatives, including those from Flagler, Lee County, and Volusia, and they gave these other devastating statistics. After each speaker... Chairman Ben Albritton from the Polk County, Hardy County, hard-hit area asked if there was a common theme among the homes destroyed, and the Charlotte and Collier County speakers answered that the majority, not surprising, were older, slab-on-grade homes constructed with outdated building codes. I then had a chance to speak to the great American known as Kevin Guthrie, Florida's emergency management director, about this residential damage. Our firm stays in touch with Kevin and follows what he does because he has such a passion for making sure homes don't blow down. He said almost a million residents in the affected counties have asked FEMA for individual assistance, which maxes out somewhere around $37,000. Of those, almost 65% had no property insurance and 92% had no flood insurance. So what lessons are we going to draw from this hurricane's massive destruction? Do we need to toughen the Florida Building Code, especially for future storm damage? Do we need to educate those that are living in these older homes what they need to do to strengthen them? Can they be strengthened? Is part of the problem our longstanding decision to live in low-lying coastal and inland areas that have a tendency to flood and to build structures not designed to survive the extreme weather that we know is coming? And what levels of greater resilience Can we afford in terms of construction cost, or can we not afford it in terms of property insurance premiums? You know, we're looking at construction costs going through the roof if we build stronger. We're looking at property insurance premiums rising because perhaps we haven't. We're honored to have with us today two of the greatest minds in their respective fields of structural engineering and catastrophic risk assessment. These two scientists I've known for many years, and I follow their work as much as I can, though I made C's in science. 
I enjoy talking with them and how they speak English and help all of us that are lay people understand the ravages of the wind and what we should do to prevent it. This is all on our show today, the Florida Insurance Roundup. So joining us from Gainesville is Dr. David Pravat. He's a professor of civil and coastal engineering at the University of Florida down in Gainesville at the Herbert Wertheim College of Engineering. He is part of the Structural Extreme Events Reconnaissance Network of researchers that conduct surveys to assess building performance after each hurricane. You can often see them immediately after, as soon as they can get in the affected area with their cameras and their laptops, trying to understand what the storm did to structures. Their report released in November captured the storm's damage patterns and the dreaded storm surge. Dr. Bravat also leads a separate investigation team supported by the Florida Building Commission to document the performance of residential buildings covered by the building code to analyze what did the wind and flood do. So, David, welcome to the show. Hi, good morning, Lisa. Thank you so much for inviting me, and uh, thank you for bringing this very important issue to the public's attention. Absolutely. And returning for a second visit is my good friend and colleague, joining us all the way from Boston, Dr. Karthik Ramanathan. He's the Vice President of Research at Verisk, the worldwide data analytics and risk assessment firm, and he led the catastrophe modeling team that put Hurricane Ian's initial insurance and reinsurance losses at between $42 billion and $57 billion, not including the flood damage and losses. Our longtime listeners will remember Karthik from one of our past Hurricane Michael podcasts, where we discussed why the panhandle wasn't hurricane strong for Michael's Category 5 wind speeds. Karthik, welcome back to our show. Thank you, Lisa. It's it's an honor to be here. I always enjoy talking to you, and it's it's really nice to talk to David as well. Perfect. That's going to be great. So, David, let's start with you. You released a report. It's very much a public service, an easy read, and it's called the Structural Extreme Events Reconnaissance Network. We use the acronym STEER, and as I told the audience earlier, it's a volunteer group of very smart scientists and skilled university researchers from around the country that come together within a few days after a huge storm like Ian, and you're walking the fields and you're surveying the damage. And I know that all of you specifically look at structural building damage, and we'll have a link to the report in our podcast notes, but tell the audience why they should read it and how it can help them and what's in that report. Well, thank you, Lisa, STAIR really is sponsored by the National Science Foundation, uh, federal research, and therefore its results, its findings belong to all of us. And I'm very proud to say that. Um, We have about 400 members, including many who are practicing engineers, PEs, and folks working in the manufacturing of products in coastal homes. The first thing I would probably want to say is perhaps a little correction. Ian, uh, Hurricane Ian was not a designed wind event, a design level wind event. Our report and the work of NIST and uh, ERA put the peak wind speeds on land uh, affecting buildings at about 120 miles per hour. Um, This compares uh, in 
to the design level wind speeds for Collier County, for instance, or Lee County of about 154 to 160 miles per hour. So the, the damage that we saw was really, as you said, Lisa, the flooding damage severely impacted many homes, but in particular, it was the manufactured homes on Fort Myers Beach and slab on grade homes uh, as the, the committee uh, recorded, were mainly older homes. The good news, if there is any that we can draw from this, is that recent construction built to the recent Florida Building Commission uh, or Building Code standards, they performed well, even in areas where they were impacted by the 13-foot-high storm surges. Is there a way that you can use this report with local officials. You know, you're at the university, you've got these wicked smart people all over the country coming in to help complete this report. Is there a way that maybe our show or others could reach out to local officials and and how do we help you get this in the hands of the people that need to educate the ultimate consumer and constituents in their localities? Well, thank you, Lisa. You know what? One of the saddest parts for me I'll pause here, is I've done this in Hurricane Matthew in 2016, and then in Hurricane Irma in 2017, and then in Hurricane Michael in 2018, and now Hurricane Ian in 2022. I'm seeing the same patterns, okay? As smart and as interested and as focused as we are, the engineers here, all we can do is report to the next 22 million Florida residents, hey, we experience storm surges, we experience high winds. If we don't harden our communities or retreat and move them away from these intense events, we will repeat what we've seen here five, 10, 20 years down the road. So the, the you know, the, the value of my report is to help a population understand their risks and to uh, give them the options of what perhaps would be alternatives to doing just the same things we've done for the last 20, 30 years. We're going to help you, David, get this report in the right hands of the people that need to hear it. I don't want to wait for the next storm for you to say <laughs> we did the same thing. So I'll bucket over to, to Karthik. You know, your the Extreme Event Solutions model, formerly known as AIR Worldwide, and for our listeners, there's about four catastrophe models in the world that help insurance companies, reinsurers, banks, others understand the vulnerabilities of communities, how to anticipate losses when events occur. And, and Karthik, if you can take it from here, talk about what your model does, how it can help even, you know, like I say, I want to actually get it into communities and get more communities to use it for vulnerability purposes. Tell us about the model, how it works, and what your process was to come up with that $42 billion to $57 billion estimate accounting for what occurred in Hurricane Ian. Thanks, Lisa. So catastrophe models, as you all know, is they are excellent tools. Of course, they help you price 
the value of risk that communities and individual homes or individual policy holders are faced with to come up with a realistic number that could be charged as premium but then catastrophe or extreme event models can also act as excellent platforms for you to test out the impact of mitigation me measures. So let's say, given that we are talking about Hurricane Ian, if one of these communities, especially the coastal communities, decide to install a flood wall to protect properties and you know the, the areas that they service from being impacted the way they were impacted, you can use extreme event models or catastrophe models to test the, the effectiveness of certain mitigation measures. Verisk does a lot of community outreach uh, through the through the work. In fact, one of our um, missions is to promote global resilience uh, because insurance, the way I look at it, is the best form of mitigation if used properly. Uh, Lisa, you more than anyone knows the, the, the impact of assignment of benefits and fraud. But it, keeping that aside, in, insurance when employed properly is, is the best form of mitigation because um, the homeowners are able to get paid for the damages that their individual homes or businesses are facing to help them come back to the, to the form and shape that they were prior to the, to the disaster. I've been to the Boston offices of Extreme Event Solutions. There's about 400 scientists that are there, you know, wind engineers, meteorologists, hydrologist. It's a fascinating company that does a lot of great work that not a lot of people know about. You know, when you when you release these estimates, do you hope that this will give kind of a wake-up call to say, look, these numbers are in the billions, and what is it that we can do? Certainly listening to what David's saying, I'm tired of saying the same thing for five and six and eight storms, and we don't seem to be seeing any changes. When you release the estimates, who's using those estimates? Carthy. Great question. Thanks for that, Lisa. The estimates and the event sets that we create, we actually create what we call an event set that our clients can run through the models that they license from us. And they can look at their insurance portfolios against these event sets and understand what is the loss potential that they could likely see. Uh, in my understanding, companies use these estimates in a variety of ways they can decide where to deploy their claim adjusters because they can see where, where, what the model is saying as being the hard hit areas and the magnitude and volume of claims that are likely from some of these areas. So it can help with resource prioritization at their end um, in an effort to you know help people more quickly. Um, it also helps them understand if they have enough capital to to essentially deploy in the aftermath of these events. So those are two use cases. We, of course, I mean, some of the estimates that we put out, the press releases that we make is open to the wide world. I mean, um, the governments, local governments or the offices of insurance regulations uh, in these states that are affected by these events can absolutely take a look at them to understand what lies ahead of them in terms of the loss potential. And to go back to something that uh, David said, it is absolutely a recurring theme. Uh, as you know, Lisa, you have helped us with getting our boots on the ground in the immediate aftermath of many of these events where we have, where I've just given you a phone call and you have helped me put out our teams to survey damage in an attempt to better some of these loss estimates. Absolutely see a recurring theme. In fact, ironically, last year 2022 when ian made landfall in southwest florida was the 30th anniversary of hurricane andrew 
And you actually saw some of the same themes of damage going all the way back to Hurricane Andrew. As David said, uh, the performance of manufactured homes or what are colloquially called mobile homes continues to be a major issue even 30 years after Hurricane Andrew. Although a lot has been done to strengthen them, we saw colossal amount of damage to manufactured homes. Um, older and I want to say middle-aged homes also saw significant damage. I mean, surveying damage. We spent about a week in southwest Florida going across county lines, not only looking at coastal counties, but also going to some of the inland counties. And you'll be amazed beyond Lee County, Charlotte County, Sarasota and Collier counties, which were right along the coast, which saw the direct impacts, if you will, of coastal winds and coastal storm surge. If you look at the losses and the claim magnitudes from some of the inland counties like mm. Volusia or Orange or Polk, Volusia again is a coastal county on the other coast of Florida, um, it, it's pretty staggering. And some of these counties almost rank similarly in terms of the losses or claims that they have seen, similar to a West Coast county such as Collier. And it begs the question, what, what is producing these losses? And I'm, I'm, again, only purely talking here about wind losses, because as you know, mm -hmm. flood insurance penetration is still pretty poor in Florida. And a bulk of those losses get paid out by the National Flood Insurance Program operating under the auspices of FEMA. But even on the wind side, some of these inland counties saw significant amount of claims, primarily coming in from roof damage. And to me, it's mind-boggling saying the same state which sort of pioneered wind design, not just in the United States, but sort of across the world, is seeing some of the same issues 30 years on um, in an event like Ian. I'm absolutely in awe of how we have got to work together to take the good information between you two scientists and get it out into the general domain, which brings up, David, I listened January 24th, uh, uh, the Senate Community Affairs Committee uh, talking. It was a 35-minute meeting. We'll put the meeting minutes, uh, the meeting committee packet, and the link to watch the committee. And there were three components of discussion at that meeting. One was the history of the building code. Uh, second was to talk about, uh, you know, the whole uh, milestone inspection process, which, of course, are those inspections where the legislature wants to make sure that uh, high-rise buildings are inspected properly so we don't ever, ever, ever have another collapse like the Surfside uh, Champlain Towers. And then third, it was a discussion of the report about uh, that went into a deep dive about that uh, collapse. And David, let's can we talk about coastal erosion? What do we do to prevent it? What do we need to do to strengthen buildings that are on the coast they are already there? Does your team look at that particular trend and the vulnerabilities coastal erosion causes for these gorgeous buildings on the water? And the reason I'm asking is because we saw Hurricane Nicole 43 days after Hurricane Ian and all that footage of the water washing away the shoreline and those buildings teetering on collapse. What are your thoughts about that, David? So let me take you back to 2016. Remember Hurricane Matthew? Mm -hmm. It didn't make landfall. And yet, the east coast of Florida was eroded, perhaps not as badly as in Nicole, but it was eroded. So let's 
maybe step back and uh, unpack this whole uh, question of what we have. Hurricanes have happened for millennia. Native Americans lived in harmony here. And, you know, who knows what they saw in their impacts. But do you think that there may be a reason why Florida never had that higher population of Native Americans before the Spaniards came to St. Augustine? <laughs> you know, they, we have the same hurricanes today. They're no more intense, they're not larger, nor are they more frequent than the hurricanes that have happened over the last 5,000 years. So what is happening? We have more construction. Um. We have more people building on barrier islands. Barrier islands are called barrier islands, I think, because they were meant to protect the mainland shoreline from these storm surge, from these damages, and they're meant to move. The sand moves with the wind. You know, hurricanes, they are natural hazards. This is just how things are. We have it in our collective possibility to build wherever and however we choose to build. At this point in Florida, after having populations increased by, you know, four times since the 1970s and 1980s, uh, we really have to stop and ask ourselves, how much further, how much money, how much federal effort should we put into securing and holding on with our biting nails to small pieces of land as opposed to uh, leaving and understanding what is happening on a natural basis. Got it, David. I never really connected the dots. You know, we hear about extreme event solutions, extreme events. It's coming. It's getting worse. But the perspective you're bringing to this podcast is that they're not worse. We just have more construction that's affected by it. We put these gleaming buildings on the coastline and the storms hit, the erosion happens, and we wonder what happened. Karthik, what are your thoughts about that? Thanks, Lisa. And um, I mean, David put it brilliantly. I mean, that's, a, that's an amazing historical perspective about population growth. So here is another mind-boggling fact to me. In June of 2022, there was a report that was put out by the Florida Department of Environmental Protection which evaluated the level of erosion along the entire Florida coastline. And if you, if you look in that report, there's a beautiful map that is published with um, a legend. And Volusia County, which is where Hurricane Nicole made landfall, already had warning signs as the report identified over 20 miles of critically eroded shoreline. This is really? in June of 2022. Now, if you fast forward to November after Hurricane Ian, because Hurricane Ian had further ravaged the coast, compromising the coastline, and it essentially undermined any restorative effects that might have been underway. And although only it was a low category one, Hurricane Nicole, it produced surge, which was further compounded by a high tide, and it took direct strike on an already critically eroded coastline, ultimately exposing the shortcoming that was highlighted in that report. So it is, it is also sort of looking at the risk as it exists and acting in a timely fashion. Because to me, this is something that could have been mitigated. Uh, but it's just that, you know, the, the fact that risks are identified, 
and you compound that with what david rightly said we are building in areas where we are not supposed to build and further we are building in a manner that is not necessarily resilient by putting homes on slab foundations is what led to a disaster that according to me my humble opinion could have been 100% mitigated you heard it here first audience you have two scientists saying what we all know don't build where it's where it's risky or too risky and then we all pay so moving on from Nicole and Ian we know that the vast knowledge of engineering risk modeling you know can be made available not just to the insurance and reinsurance industry so Dr. Pravat of your work life your workload is a majority of it spent with communities or is it just academic research and if it's not spent on the ground in communities what is it we need to do to help you and great scientists like Karthik roll up their sleeves and spend 80% of your time uh, spreading the good word versus more academia what are your thoughts well let's choose that 80% number do you know 65% of our residential houses were built before hurricane andrew before the building code changed following hurricane andrew wow okay so what we're facing is we're we're just not at scale yet to really impact future uh changes in our mitigation building construction may be you know one two three percent added inventory per year but so far no one has really got their hands around to saying that my house in Gainesville which is built in the 1990s and when I go up and I look at my roof or I look at the the fact that I don't have a you know a, a, a share wall in any place of it I know it needs to be retrofitted but even me as a structural engineer what can I do how can I get it I don't even have you know a, you know a supply chain of contractors who would be willing to take on a job like that imagine multiplying my need to mitigate my one house by you know 5 million 10 million houses how many houses are there in florida right and so these are the kinds of things now let's look at the 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 research environment the academics okay as i said the national science foundation they uh uh, is where the the direction comes, the science plans for uh, this work that we constantly do. And so they're looking for certain things, right? They're calling a tune, and so we're going to dance. Um, but to my mind, if I wanted to make the greatest impact, it would be to understand how do I, as a structural engineering researcher, get myself involved to support policy changes that ensure one strong building codes and two doing the research that will actually uh, retrofit houses at scale not one house at a time one neighborhood at a time one town at a time it is not until we get to these places whereby we can get some uh, work done we engineers have been educated we have been given the opportunity to play with tools by the public and this is to whom we owe our ethical duties and responsibilities so for me 
this this becomes quite personal when we're looking at Hurricane Ian and how it has impacted Lee County. Um, one of the things that hides some of this is that we talk on a very large macro scale about the 30 billion or the 80 billion of damage. Now let's start to disaggregate that big number. And what you're gonna find is that the majority of this damage disproportionately high percentages are going to fall on the least able in our society. The poorest, the minorities, the black communities, the tribal communities, these are the people who have been wiped out. The retirees, did you know over 65% of the fatalities were over 60 years of age? Right. So the things that we have to look at is not just that median, that modal middle of the bell curve. We're looking at the extremes of the population. And these are the people who don't even know that engineers and scientists are out here working for them and scientists and engineers. We're not working for that level of the population. One of the low-hanging fruits, as Karthik mentioned, could we please develop better, stronger, more resilient foundations for manufactured homes? It can be done. It has been done. We need to implement. And that is the, the things that I think would be a nice switch for us to go forward. So speaking of getting down on the ground and working with local officials, Listening to some of the Lee County, which was ground zero, uh, local officials talk about, you know, the future of how to address storm surge. You know, I know we have a new version of the building code will be effective December 31, 2023. Just that fact, if you listen to that Senate Community Affairs Committee meeting, you'll hear it's a triennial process. Every three years, the eighth edition of the building code will be effective December 31st, 2023. But the D Department of Business and Professional Regulation uh, spokesperson said that they, out of 600 some odd uh, requests for revisions to the seventh edition, they accepted over 400 of those. And they even have what's called the you know glitch process. So mm. for example, when Senate Bill 4D passed in May of 2022, which was the over 100-page bill to address how never to have a Surfside problem uh, collapse again, uh, the Building Commission met to amend the building code with some of its provisions. So do you see, David and, and or Karthik, where the scientists like you are going to be looking at the building code, writing some suggested amendments to the 8th edition when it gets released the end of this year? You talked about manufactured home standards, what do you see in the next two to three years over the next triennial uh, discussion points to develop the ninth edition of the building code that you would recommend off the top of your head? Garthic, any thoughts? Sure. A couple of things that, again, I don't know if I might necessarily be in the same position to, to make recommendations coming from the corporate world as my friend David would be and his colleagues would be. They're perfectly suited. So, but... If you look at past events, here is where I feel the, the building codes can make significant progress. Again, 
looking or resonating from patterns that were seen not just in Ian, but also going back to Michael and Irma and other events that Florida has seen uh, in the recent past. Um, it would be really instructive to take a closer look at screened enclosures, um, because this is a common theme. I mean, especially when we were looking, when we were um, on the ground looking at damage in Lee County and some of the adjacent counties, counties, there was a significant amount of damage that was attributed to screened enclosures. Maybe something to to harden them and prevent them from getting damaged. Because if you have to replace a screened enclosure, you're looking at a claim to the magnitude of about five thousand or six thousand dollars. And given the inflationary environment that we are in, it's probably even higher. Um, I think it's about time to almost recommend window protection across the board in Florida. Um, Oftentimes, residents complain, am I in a windborne debris area? Am I not in a windborne debris area? It fairly doesn't cost a lot to, in, to, to install window protection systems or opening protection systems. I hope the building code will just say, irrespective of where you are in Florida, Florida inland or co coastal, within the windborne debris or outside the windborne debris region, just make the entirety of the state uh, in, the, in, the, uh, in the purview of the windborne debris regions. Uh, manufactured homes, unfortunately, fall under a federal standard. It falls under the housing and urban development standards. Although states can have certain local amendments in place, I hope to the to the fact that David said, if foundation design for manufactured homes can be looked at closely, and even importantly, if they can be enforced to the mm. same degree as some of the other um, regular single-family home enforcements take place in Florida. I think it will go a long way in mitigating uh, damage following such events. David, I think you could actually ask Karthik to write some of that down, and we can we can submit it to the Building Commission. Um, you know, again, knowing that the Building Commission, as I said, had six hundred and twenty some odd recommendations over the three years, they approved over four hundred. Uh, Perhaps there are things that we could sit down with the building commission at one of their public meetings and say, we've been there. We, like you said at the beginning of this podcast, I've been to every storm since dirt, basically not over 5,000 years, but you probably feel like that. And here's what I would do if we want to see better outcomes. What are your thoughts, David? Well, what if I told you, if I had my druthers, I wouldn't go to the building court. I tell you why. I see that uh, what we should be looking at is how do we create a resilient community born in the 22nd century? It takes about 50 years of one by one buildings, uh, planning, et cetera, et cetera, to get there. So in fact, we probably have about 10 years, 20 years now before we start doing things right so that in 20. 100 we have resilient construction in florida i tell you where i would spend my time it is the interdisciplinary uh, research between the economics urban planning and engineering analysis that will be necessary for us to uh, you know on a macro level recite our coastal residential communities further inland converting the land right along the the, the dangerous coastlines to other uses. Find ways to buy out properties, move entire people to safer areas, and ultimately 
How about this? Conceive of a more compact, pedestrian-friendly community landscapes that people can thrive in. Now, this is way beyond my pay grade, uh, Lisa, but I think, you know, if I, if we engineers continue to do the same type of research for the next 20 years in the same type of way, we will still end up with the same result. We have to think way bigger. We have to be grand, we have to be bold, and we have to go out there and do this. This is a moonshot moment. This is time that Florida needs to step up and change it all. And with that, I am so grateful to have you two incredible scientists on our show today. We'll have a link to to all of the various reports and information that we discussed today, gentlemen. And I just want to thank you, David. That was a perfect ending to a great uh, visit that we've had today. Thank you for being here, David. Thank you so much. Happy to be here. And Karthik, again, thanks for coming back to the show. Thanks for having me. It was a pleasure. Absolutely. And we've taken all these great notes so you don't have to. And you can like this podcast, you know, through your various social media platforms and share it with your colleagues and just help us get the word out. These scientists are, you know, working their fingers to the bone and we want the whole world to know that they're there and they're trying to make the world literally a better place. Tell us what you think about what we've chatted about today. I'd love to hear your experiences about Hurricane Ian damage and rising insurance rates and everything else that we seem to continue to, to research and talk about on this show where you, you can call us. We have an on-air phone number at 850-388-8002. That's 850-388-8002. Or you can email me directly, Lisa Miller at Lisa Miller Associates with an S on the end.com. That's Lisa Miller, all one word, at lisamillerassociates.com. Thank you for being a part of this for all of our listening audience. We released a podcast not too long ago and had some great commentary from our listeners, which give us great ideas for future podcasts. We have a passion for policy and our client success in our business. And I'm Lisa Miller here and want you all to stay safe until next time. Thank you for listening. This has been Lisa Miller and Associates' Florida Insurance Roundup, your podcast on the people, issues, and regulations shaping Florida's insurance market. For more information on today's program, please visit us on the web at www.lisamillerassociates.com.